I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. On August 18th, 19 arrests were made that accused those being taken into custody of alleged voter fraud in the 2020 election. Those arrested were former felons who had completed their sentences for convictions of murder or a sexual sexual offense. Amendment 4, passed in November 2018 and enacted in 2019, restores the right to vote to felons in Florida that meet the requirements, except for those convicted of murder or sexual offense. But the men and women were given voter ID cards and were allowed to vote. Police camera footage obtained by the Tampa Bay Times shows the frustration and confusion behind these arrests. I'm like, voter fraud? I voted, but I ain't fought, committing no fraud. Well, so th that's the thing. I, I don't know exactly what happened with it, but you, you do have a warrant. That's what it's for. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I don't know what happened with that, but... That was Ramona Oliver and the officer who was taking her into custody. Both seemed confused about what was happening. Oliver served 18 years in prison on a second-degree murder charge. She registered to vote at the DMV in February 2020. Six months later, she updated her address and completed another registration. Fifteen of the 19 people arrested were black and 12 were registered Democrats. They face a third-degree felony punishable by up to $5,000 fine and up to five years in prison, according to the state. But one man already got his case dismissed. Uh, Wayne Washington covers the West Palm Beach, Rivera Beach, and issues of race for the Palm Beach Post. And Howard Simon is the former head of the ACLU, former director of Florida ACLU, and he currently sits on the board of the Florida Policy Institute. Wayne Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great to hear you, Wayne. Uh, Wayne, you've published a detailed analysis surrounding the historical challenges black American voters have faced in Florida. Your, your report also touches on felon disenfranchisement, the legal act of stripping voting rights from returning citizens, people who were formerly incarcerated. Now, recent arrests across the state ordered by Governor Ron DeSantis's Office of Election Crimes and Security have sparked outrage among civil rights groups and communities. What did your analysis find in those specific arrests? Well, the, the state arrested these folks um, in large part because they voted after they, they voted thinking that Amendment 4 had restored their right to vote. But in fact, Amendment 4, as you might remember, specifically excluded people with murder convictions, felony murder convictions and sex crime convictions. But attorneys I've spoken to say a lot of the folks who've been arrested did not realize that they had been excluded um, and they were still ineligible to vote. And so they went ahead and voted. And after they voted, they were arrested. Now, Wayne, it's not just voters and advocates speculating on the intent of the Election Crimes and Security uh, Unit and criticizing its impact. Some elected Dem Democrats have been outspoken against the unit. What are DeSantis's critics saying about uh, Florida's Election Crimes Unit? Well, they've been pretty clear. They were clear in the run-up to the passage of the legislation that allowed for the unit to be created, and they're clear now. And what they've argued is that this unit will focus disproportionately on Black voters, and black voters, as we know, are disproportionately supportive of Democrats. They tend to support Democrats overwhelmingly. And so just based on that fact, you're going to be trimming the electorate down in a way that helps Republicans. They believe it's a, a tool that will intimidate voters, frighten voters. 
and will reduce turnout in ways that will help Republicans. And so that's one of the reasons, one of the things you can see when you look at the debate around it is Democrats almost unanimously opposing this unit and Republicans saying it's okay. So uh, essentially limiting the influence of black voters since many black voters in Florida support the Democratic Party. Is that is that a fair assessment? That is that is the assessment of the critics of this unit, certainly. Uh, Now, an hour ago, ABC News reported that a man, uh, Robert Lee Wood, uh, who was recently arrested by the Election Crimes Unit for voter fraud, got his case dismissed by a Miami judge because the prosecutor lacked jurisdiction. He's the first out of the 19 people from August to beat his case, winning it on uh, a, a technicality, essentially. Now, now, Wayne, Governor DeSantis acknowledged the, quote, efficient, transparent election in 2020. That's a view widely shared across the political spectrum. Before any arrests were made, Secretary of State Cord Byrd, who spoke on behalf of the governor and the election crimes unit earlier this year, uh, he told WLRN, quote, additional security was a priority of the DeSantis's administration. Have you spoken to the government officials about the racial disparity after the election crimes unit arrests? Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a response from the governor's office. I've reached out repeatedly after finding, you know, our report found that the first, I think it was 15 of the first 19 folks arrested were black. And that wouldn't have been a shock given the, the overrepresentation of black folks among the felon population. But not only was I looking to hear from the governor's office on the racial aspect of who was being arrested, I really wanted to get some understanding of the the societal value of having felons, even felons convicted of terrible crimes like murder and sex crimes, once they've served their time and they're back out into society and they're expected to be reintegrated into society, I don't quite understand. And I think a lot of people are confused about why it is that voting should still be held in abeyance. Their right to vote should still be kind of withheld. I understand having sex offenders register for uh, register. That's a public safety issue. But but why at all should felons, once they've served their time and be and been released back into society, why is voting something that's still held back for them? I don't understand that, and I would love to have the governor's office or anyone who, who believes that that's an appropriate policy explain that in a way that I could explain to our readers. And, and, and Wayne, you're a veteran journalist who, who've been covering these uh, types of topics for quite some time. Uh, the news broke recently. Ha- have you followed the Robert Lee Wood story about his case being dismissed? I, I'm aware that it was dismissed. I, I know um, it was a jurisdictional issue from what I've understand, um, what I've understood. But attorneys I've spoken to have told me that a lot of these cases may well become problematic. And that, as you mentioned in the lead into this, the a lot of the folks who, who were arrested actually obtained voter registration cards. And so it's hard to tell a judge or a jury, hey, this person should be punished for voting when they were actually given a voter registration card. And so if we can't tell people who should be eligible to vote and who should not be eligible to vote, I would imagine that those cases are going to be difficult to to bring home and and get convictions on. Right. I understand that. Now, now, now the Republican controlled 
Florida legislature also eliminated two heavily black congressional districts earlier this year. Uh, and there's a long U.S. history of black disenfranchisement, social and legal tactics such as poll taxes and grandfather clauses that have limited the ability for black Americans to vote. Can you touch on that a bit? Is that what's driving some of the critics of this election crimes unit? Certainly that's the feeling. And, you know, as a journalist, I can't report definitively on intent, but I can absolutely and I have reported on impact. And while we could never really know why Florida's disenfranchisement laws are what they are, we can certainly look at the impact. And the impact is absolutely that it disproportionately impacts Black voters. We know that Black voters do, in fact, overwhelmingly support Democrats. And so if you take an action, if you establish a policy that shrinks down Black voting power, you absolutely will conversely, increase Republican voting power. You, you will help Republicans. And so while we don't know that that's the intent, we know that's the impact. And so I think we can certainly report that, and I have. That, that, that's, a, that's a great point to differentiate, differentiate between int, intent and impact. Let's stick on impact. Now, DeSantis is running for re-election as governor. There is obviously a human element here that former felons and advocacy groups are raising in terms of giving people a chance to re-enter back into society. But are people also viewing this unit as a political win for DeSantis? It certainly is a winner for DeSantis in that he could claim to have done something about voter fraud. Now, you know, any analysis, every analysis I've read suggests that election fraud is extremely rare and it would need to be on a mass scale in order to impact an election in the state as large as Florida. But of course, lots of GOP voters have come to believe that election fraud is a problem because the most popular and the most influential figure in the Republican Party, Donald Trump, has been running around the country saying without factual basis that the 2020 election was stolen from him. It was not stolen and he lost. But he continues to say that the election was rigged. And so Republican voters believe that something must be done to address this. And DeSantis, who will want those voters to support him, not only in his bid for re-election as governor, but possibly as a presidential candidate in 2024, the, establishing this election crimes unit will give him an opportunity to tell those voters, hey, look, when I was governor, I did something to address election fraud. And that will be something that will be a win for him. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating perspective. Now, a lot of folks in the community are, of course, thankful for the sort of watchdog journalism that's been ha happening across the state here. But let's talk about solutions. Uh, civil rights organizations have launched a bail bond fund, a legal defense fund. But what's more striking is that there is a drive to establish a statewide voter verification system. Uh, what are your thoughts on a statewide voter ver verification system that would inform people who were formerly incarcerated or whether they could, you know, to, to provide information on whether they could vote or not. Have you spoken to anyone that is advocating for that system? Absolutely. Um, the lawyers who are representing some of these defendants, the folks who have been arrested for having voted illegally, they argue that, look, these cases are going to go nowhere. And it's, they're going to go nowhere in large part because there is no current system that can tell you definitively who is eligible and who is not. Um, and if there is one, I'm unaware of it. And if there is one, 
it still remains a mystery as to how some of these folks got voter registration cards. And so the advocates for these felons and their criminal defense attorneys believe that the state needs to fix it sort of on the front end by creating some type of database that would allow applicants to know if they are in fact eligible to vote and and know if they're not eligible to vote. We, we aren't and shouldn't expect people to know the fine points of amendment four or specific legislation that, that will down its reach, but we ought to be able to tell someone who applies for a voter registration card, no, you are not eligible or yes, you are eligible. Right, and Wayne, before I let you go, do you believe that this will deter um, folks from voting, uh, returning citizens into our society from voting? I've already been told by by state legislators that I've interviewed that it is having just that effect. Um, there was one state senator, Senator Bobby Powell, um, told me that he's spoken to people who have said that they've contemplated voting. They think that they're eligible to vote, but they're afraid to vote. They see the governor on the news holding a press conference talking about arresting people after they have voted. And so these are folks who've served time in prison. And they're unwilling to risk going back to jail or going going back to prison uh, to vote in an election. And so if that's hanging out there, you can be certain that some people will be afraid to vote. And elections are very closely, they've been very narrowly decided in Florida in recent years. And so any small number of people deciding not to vote could have a very large impact. Wayne Washington covers West Palm Beach, Riviera Beach, and issues of race for the Palm Beach Post. Wayne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, man. Absolutely. Good to talk with you. Absolutely. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about Amendment 4 is Howard Simon, former editor of the Florida ACLU, board member of the Florida Policy Institute. Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, Howard, you spent almost two decades working on the issue of voting rights for people with felony convictions, which culminated in the uh, ACLU helping get Amendment 4 passed in 2018. Now, earlier this week, as you've probably already know, Tampa Bay Times published police footage of confused men and women getting arrested by the state's election crimes unit, and it reignited the debate over Florida's troubled implementation of Amendment 4. Did you ever imagine we would see images like this, uh, like the one you saw this week? Well, I, I have to say I, I uh, did expect that. And, uh, and I think what I expected will, will be worse, what, uh, what we'll see. Look, what, what we have seen so far are people who uh, were given a voter ID card approved as eligible voters by the state of Florida, by the Elections Division of the Secretary of State, Ironically, DeSantis's employees at the uh, at the elections division, <clears throat> and then after they voted, after they voted, they were informed that they were not eligible. That's something worth uh, worth discussing as to what's going to happen to, uh, to their cases. Um, but they were cases involving uh, people who have convictions. For murder, or well, actually, in this case, I think they were all people who were convicted of a felony sex offense. The most recent one was someone who was convicted 
are charged with uh, voting, even though they were not a citizen. They used a, a false ID. To your question, where I did expect this, and what I think we will see in uh, much more of this, are people who probably will be charged because they have no idea that they still owe any legal financial obligation, which is how the legislature and the governor tampered with uh, Amendment 4 to require the payment of legal financial obligations when there is no system in place to tell people uh, how much they owe or even whether they owe. And that, I think, is a giant gotcha. And so I'm, what I was expecting when the legislature enacted that restriction uh, and then established this election police unit is that we're going to see probably a lot more where people end up voting because they believe they're eligible, because they were given a voter ID card by the state. Right. Uh, but there was no uh, system in place to tell them that they owe, they, they still owe money or uh, and how much they owe. And, and, and Howard, a federal court in 2020 ruled that Florida has created a system that was so confusing that people who are eligible to vote would not vote because they can't confirm if they can vote or not, to your point. And, and people who are not eligible would be prosecuted because it was impossible to confirm this on the front end. Uh, but that decision was overruled by an appeals court. Do you feel like that original decision has now been vindicated? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's not simply... Look, the, the federal judge in this particular case, Robert Henkel, and I, I would urge, it's a 125-page opinion, but I think everybody who wants to understand the history of voting rights in Florida, the history of the role of race discrimination plays in voting rights, read that opinion. Um, I mean, that was a real contribution to the culture of Florida, that scholarship by by that federal judge. It wasn't simply that he said that there was so much confusion created by uh, by this or so much bureaucracy, but that what was created was the principal injustice that is now imposed upon us by the legislature, the governor, and the Court of Appeals, what he called a pay-to-vote system, that in order to vote, you have to pay. Now, there's a secondary injustice in which the state in which voters have an obligation to pay their legal financial obligations before they can vote, but the state has no obligation to tell you how much you owe or whether or not you owe anything. So it's the it's the pay-to-vote system that we now have in Florida that the original decision of the federal judge, which is, I think, so correct and so vindicated by... Uh, by what we are seeing in the creation of this election police force. Right, right. Essentially, the judge ruled that the lack of clarity would create a chilling effect for people with felonies who want to participate in elections. Now, Howard, there are people calling for a statewide voter verification system. I posed this question to Palm Beach County reporter, I'm sorry, Palm Beach Post reporter Wayne Washington mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. previous segment. Do you see that as one solution to help people returning back to our communities? Well, it, uh, yes, it's the minimum that the state can do, the minimum. I mean, how do you tell people that you 
um, can vote only if you pay some outstanding debt, but then not tell them whether they have a debt or how much that debt is. Yes, that is the minimum that the state can do. But it seems to me that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is to correct the injustice that was done by the legislature uh, to require a pay-to-vote system in the first place. Look, other other states, let's take the state of Illinois, for example. Uh, the state of Illinois uh, has a system whereby if people owe a, an outstanding legal financial obligation, and let's understand what that is, that means a, a uh court fees, court fines, uh, restitution, anything anything like that, um, that is separated from the right to vote. Uh, people who can pay, pay that. People who are unable to pay that go on a payment plan. And being on a payment plan does not mean that you're ineligible to vote. It's, it's separated. Uh, so, yes, telling people what they owe and whether they owe anything is the least that the state can do. But it would be uh, really a, a better correction to this injustice to separate the obligation to pay from the right to be a full citizen once you have served your time. Yeah, and you brought up these separate examples. Kentucky, for example, has a simple website where you just plug your name and it tells you if you can vote or not. Uh, they released this website mere days after a Democratic governor was elected in 2019. Uh, I have another question for you. Uh, what went through your head when you heard Governor DeSantis call to create an Office of Election Crimes? Well, what, what went through your head when that was actually passed? Well, I, I don't think this has anything to do with the integrity of elections. I really think that this is uh, what, I, what went through my head is that this is going to be another stunt. Uh, when I saw the arrest, uh, I mean, you know, I, I think this is really very similar to uh, tricking Venezuelan asylum seekers onto planes and lying to them about where they were going and what services they will find where they get there or uh, the stunt of trying to ban classroom discussions about race if it makes anybody feel uncomfortable in no universe uh, in no universe that still has a first amendment as we still have in this country is some like banning discussion in a classroom going to ultimately be in, be upheld as uh, as legal but this is another stunt like that it has nothing to do with the effectiveness. It has nothing to do with election uh, integrity. It has everything to do with politics and sending a message, as your previous guest, Wayne, uh, mentioned, sending a message to the electorate, principally the electorate, those people who are going to be voting in a 2024 Republican presidential primary. That's what DeSantis has his eye on, to be able to tell them that, look, you're all concerned about uh, um, about election fraud. I've done something about it. Uh, these cases are going to go nowhere. Uh, the cases will be dismissed, uh, and some already have been dismissed. I can't imagine that any of these cases uh, will result in convictions uh, for people who got who were, where the state told them that they were eligible to vote and got a, a voter ID card. 
but that's not the point. The point. Hold, is hold, hold on one second, uh, Howard. We, we have a caller on the line. Sorry uh, about that. Yeah. Is it Zubin? Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Hello, Zubin. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes. Uh, what, what's your question? Do you have a question for Howard or a question about the topic at hand? Well, so I, you know, I, I just want to say, so I'm a criminal defense attorney down here in Broward County, um, and my organization, we're Legal Aid, and we do assist folks with, you know, trying to determine if they are able to legally vote. We, you know, we work with returning citizens all the time, um, and I, you know, I, I completely agree 100% with the thoughts that have been shared already as far as figuring out, you know, whether or not clients and persons owe money. The biggest thing has always been fines, fees, costs, and restitution. And, you know, the the thing is, is that when I do the, when I conduct a background search and check for a client, I find the fines, fees, and costs pretty easily. It's always the restitution that is the hardest thing. Once someone, you know, goes into prison and they come back out, oftentimes the restitution amounts may even be sent to um, collections agencies and the client doesn't even know. And so that, that becomes like a huge problem for clients and trying to determine if they are, you know, eligible to vote and how they can start making payments. Zoom and thank you for your perspective. Howard, uh, he brought up what essentially a lot of critics have called a poll tax. What, what, what are your thoughts on what the caller Zubin has had to say about restitution and, and, and paying fines and whatnot? Well, I, he's absolutely correct. What came out in the uh, challenge to the uh, law that the, that the legislature enacted uh, you know, disingenuously claiming that they were implementing the will of the voters in, in Amendment 4 was that there is no statewide database, that the information about whether you owe any uh, fines, fees, restitution, court costs, anything like that is maybe separated in almost a dozen different databases. Uh, and so, yes, that is a that is a serious serious problem that is going to lead to, uh, I'm sure, is going to lead to a bunch of charges, all of which will ultimately uh, be dismissed, uh, because uh, I think this is the ultimate injustice that is now that now that we have to deal with, namely, that if you have to pay to vote, that the state now has no obligation to tell you how much you owe, or whether you owe anything. Hmm. That is the overriding. The caller is correct. Right. That is the overriding injustice that is now confronting voting rights in the state of Florida. Howard Simon is former director of the Florida ACLU, board member of the Florida Policy Institute. Thank you for your time and analysis, Howard. Thank you. Still to come, voters are faced with a few county referendums and three constitutional amendment proposals on the ballot. How will you vote? 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Master Chorale of South Florida proudly shares the works of three famous composers, European classical music from Bach and Brahms, paired with Burley's American Sound, will be celebrated in this dynamic concert. Burley, one of the most influential black American composers of the 20th century, arranged traditional black music that had a powerful influence on classical music in the United States. You can experience Bach, Brahms, and Burley October 21st and 23rd. Tickets at masterchoraleofsouthflorida.org.
We're funded by members and by the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, running October 26th through the 30th. Over 1,300 boats will be on display from center console fishing boats to super yachts. Tickets and information are available at flibs.com. The Seminole Tribe of Florida's Atafiki Museum will host its American Indian Art Celebration November 4th to 5th on the Big Cypress Reservation, featuring the Hakka Maori cultural experience, native vendors, music, food, and more. Information at seminolemuseum.com. We're funded by members and by TikTok, committed to helping local businesses boom and grow, like the Fort Lauderdale Fishing Company owned by two twins who use fishing videos to boost sales. TikTok works to help South Florida businesses. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit will perform Saturday, January 21st at 8 p.m. at Hard Rock Live. Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit with special guest Peter One. On sale now at myhrl.com or ticketmaster.com. Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, Hollywood. WLRM would like to thank Corporate Circle members Andy Ziffer with Compass Realty, Miami-Dade Beacon Council, First Horizon Bank, and the Orthopedic Center of Palm Beach County. Learn how your business can join at WLRN.org slash Corporate Circle. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. In the November 8th general election, voters are faced with a few county referendums and three constitutional amendment proposals on the ballot. It requires 60% of voters to vote yes for those amendments to be enshrined in Florida's constitution. Opinion editors from the Palm Beach Post and the Sun Sentinel share their recommendations, their belief on which way to vote on those amendments. Which way are you voting on the constitutional amendments? What's driving you to vote? This midterm, we also want you to help drive our election coverage. We want to hear about why you're voting and what matters to you. Let us know by filling out a short survey on our homepage. Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us to talk about what's on the November ballot and their recommendations is Sun Sentinel opinion editor Steve Bosquet and Palm Beach Post opinion editor Tony Doris. Steve and Tony, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. How are you, Wilkin? Great to hear you. Is it Steve or Tony? This is Tony. This is Tony. <laughs> I recognize that voice. I wanted to, to double check. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I was I'm just going to say quickly, yeah. uh, good to hear you speaking so well. And also, thank you for bringing Howard Simon on the air again. Absolutely. The man not only has been working so many years to do what's right for Florida, but I know personally that he's uh, suffered really grievously from Hurricane Ian. And so here he is still speaking up on the air, even though he's he's still working out his issues there. And, and that's a good point to make. He is on the southwestern um, part of the state, I believe, on the Sanibel Island, right, if I'm correct. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and for those who don't know, Tony and I work together at the Palm Beach Post, so it's it's great to hear your voice. Steve, are you there? How are you? Yes, I'm fine. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. I hope you both are are hydrated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's start with you, Steve. Uh, making these public voting recommendations uh, sort of requires a lot of consensus among. Uh, a group of people with various perspectives uh, uh, for voting recommendations. How does the opinion staff at the Sun Sentinel gather around and make these decisions? What's the technical and creative process like in the newsroom? Yes. Uh, well, thanks for the question. What we do is we uh, we send questionnaires, very detailed questionnaires 
to candidates in both parties and in nonpartisan races. Uh, we attend or listen to community forums like those put on by groups like the League of Women Voters or political clubs. And we uh, have held uh, dozens of virtual interviews with candidates. Uh, our approach is to bring both candidates in the same race together. It's not literally a debate, but it's a, a forceful exchange of views. So that's how we do it. A forceful exchange of views. <laughs> I need to put that on the shirt. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and you, Tony, what about the Palm Beach Post editorial board? board? Similar, the... but we never, we, we no longer bring them in the same room together. We have had uh, some forceful exchanges of views that uh, became a little bit too forceful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we do, we interviewed uh, dozens of candidates and uh, asked them to fill out questionnaires beforehand. And we do our research uh, online and, and, we stay awake and and then amongst the three of us our executive editor myself and our editorial writer doug lyons we discuss where we're going with them and, and this is a conversation between the three of us so feel free to interrupt whenever you feel like but but i'll start with you tony we're in a climate of high housing prices inflation and recently as we mentioned earlier hurricane ian ravaged parts of southwestern and central florida and now people will make quite a big decision on amendment one that's what we're going to start on right now uh to decide whether they should add flood prevention improvements before we get into your voting recommendation tell me a little bit about amendment one what is it proposing to voters okay well amendment one would basically say that if you make improvements to your house to make it more resilient to sea level change or, or tidal surge, just to make it stand up better and stronger. You shouldn't be forced, the, the amendment says, uh, if, you, if it passes, that uh, you wouldn't be forced to pay higher taxes because your house is now more uh, valuable. Um, the, the additional value that you'd be creating would not be taxed under this case. Right. And, and is there any uh, examples of this of, of folks, you know, uh, fixing up their homes and, and, and having to have this um, uh, go through? Well, it, you know, if on an ordinary basis, if you like build a new addition onto your house, your house would therefore be worth more money on the market and uh, you could sell it for more. And so you'd get taxed at a higher level. So that's what this uh, amendment is trying to to get around. It's trying to be, be an incentive for people to make their homes uh, stand up to climate change. We have we have issues with it, um, not because we have issues with the resilience, but um, because of the way it's being done. I can get into that if you like. So, I don't know if you want to go there yet. Yeah, yeah, we can go there now. So you have issues with it, which means that uh, folks on the editorial board clash in order to make their decision. So what is the decision? What, what What's the recommendation for this amendment one? We're recommending against it. Not because, like I said, not because we're against uh, building your home to withstand climate change, but because we don't feel uh, a lot of things should be just thrown into constitutional amendments. If the legislature uh, has the support and wants to pass them, they should just make a law. Once you put it in a constitutional amendment, it's very hard to undo uh, on the spur of the moment if circumstances change. So uh, we support resilience, but uh, we're opposed to uh, forcing everything into a constitutional amendment. Now, maybe it's because uh, uh, there's a certain uh, part of the legislature that uh, doesn't like that just loves reducing taxes. And so if they can lock them into a constitutional amendment, they'd like to do that. But we don't think that's the way to go with this one or with the uh, one of the others that we'll get to as well. Yeah. And, and before I, and before I get to Steve's uh, recommendations, the Miami Herald was unable to join us because uh, well, but the 
also recommended that each amendment be voted no and to vote yes on all three county referendums. So we at least have a, a quick insight on what the Miami Herald thinks. Now, uh, Steve, what, what, what about the Sun Sentinel? Uh, how are they voting on Amendment 1? Yes. Uh, you know, first of all, I want the, your listeners to know this goes without saying, uh, you, you know, the Sun Sentinel and Palm Beach Post are we're competing publications or we serve different audiences. However, we independently have come to the same conclusion here. We also recommended a no vote on Amendment 1. And I agree with Tony Doris that the Constitution should not be cluttered up with so much stuff. First of all, I have to say this, that we take a skeptical view of almost anything the Florida legislature puts on the ballot. Uh, they're, they're motivated mainly by election year politics, not necessarily by what's in the best interests of Floridians. And so we also think that Amendment 1 is opens the door to the potential for abuse by people to sort of exploit this uh, this flood uh, exemption. And so, uh, you know, one of the oldest expressions in politics, certainly in Tallahassee, is when in doubt, vote no. Uh, it's not going to hurt the state or the republic if this amendment doesn't pass, and we don't think it should. And, and uh, before we get to arguments forward, obviously you've considered arguments for before deciding no um how did this get on a ballot in the first place it was put on by the florida legislature uh, oh, it okay. was a it was a bill filed in the legislature in the legislative session um and um and they they got the votes i think in fact i think in fairness i think this passed by wide margins uh by both parties in the florida legislature uh they just need uh, let me think. They need a supermajority vote, I think, to put something before the voters as a constitutional amendment. But they, they clearly have the votes to do this. I, I missed that point. My apologies. And, and what about any arguments for Amendment 1? Well, I think the arguments for it, you know, uh, relate to the issue, the broader issue of, of promoting resiliency uh, and, you know, uh, uh, in taking steps to encourage people to make their property less flood prone. And boy, after what just happened in Fort Myers, you know, that, that's, that's a, you know, that's a pretty obvious uh, lesson in the state. Absolutely. Now, now uh, Tony, for Amendment 2, let's segue it to Amendment 2 now. Uh, if 60% of voters approve, it would abolish the little known Florida Constitution Revision Commission, uh, the CRC. I, I didn't even know about the CRC until I had to report on it in 2018. Um, what, what is the CRC for, for listeners who may not know about the uh, committee? Well, it's, it's a commission. I'm no expert on it myself, but it's a commission that gets together every 20 years to make recommendations that uh, as to what should be changed in the Constitution. Um, and and then I suppose they're voted on by the legislature. But um, it's um, what Steve said absolutely applies to the Second Amendment, where, you know, when one party proposes something, uh, especially uh, this administration, you really need to be skeptical. I mean, this is this makes it very hard. Uh, it's already hard for uh, voters to get together and petition to have the Florida Constitution changed. Um, the, the legislature likes to do things itself and not, and not sometimes let the people have their say. And so by revoking, removing this uh, commission, that would remove one more way in which uh, something that isn't completely under the thumb of the legislature uh, could, could bring about any changes that might be needed or, or be considered uh, to the commission. And, uh, you know, yes, changes are needed. It, it would be great if... Uh, 
there were rules that said the commission had to have a bipartisan makeup um, so that further would remove it from politics a little bit. Um, but as it stands now, removing the commission just makes it that much harder to, to change anything in the Constitution, or at least for the people to more directly have a way to get around it. Yeah, and, and speaking speaking of that direction, the, the legislature is a partisan body. What what does that committee uh, consist of? Uh, they're not elected officials, right? Uh, I would leave that to Steve. He's got more experience in these matters than I do. Oh, sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a combination. It's, uh, it is... Um... It's it's power brokers in the local community. Last time it, it, it had a lot of former legislators on it. Uh, I'm going to say here just, of, of course, uh, quickly that um, the, the Sun Sentinel uh, vehemently opposes Amendment 2. Uh, the Constitution Revision Commission should be fixed and reformed, not abolished. And one of the reasons is this. The Florida legislature has made it uh, dramatically more difficult for citizens and for interest groups to get initiatives on the ballot. Uh, I know and you know the Republicans in Tallahassee feel as though the initiative process has been hijacked by out-of-state uh, wealthy special interest groups. That's a that's largely a myth. It's an exaggeration. It's a distortion. Uh, but the only way in a, in a one-party controlled political situation, uh, the only way for people to sort of uh, level the playing field a bit and to have a say is through the initiative process and putting issues on the ballot like raising the minimum wage or the air and water amendment that passed overwhelmingly a few years ago in Florida. These are things the legislature will not do. They won't put it before the voters. The CRC remains an option, admittedly a flawed one last time, but it is a legitimate option to get citizens issues heard that the legislature won't consider. And for those who don't know the initiative campaigns, it's essentially uh, people could collect petition uh, signatures to get amendments on, on the ballot. Um, and so, Steve, you're saying the editorial board is not having it. They are not voting for this. Um, and, and, yep, go ahead. No, I, no, no, no. Our recommendation is, 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 a, is a no vote on this. This, this, in my opinion, as the opinion editor of the Sun Sentinel, the passage of this amendment would be a big step backward for this state. Because, like I said, it would eliminate uh, one of the legitimate options for people to put things on the ballot. Uh, the, the last CRC was pretty disastrous. Uh, I would fault former Governor Rick Scott for politicizing the work of the commission. They did a lot of what's known as log rolling, where they would basically combine a motherhood and apple pie issue with something highly controversial and force the voters to accept it as an all or nothing proposition. Several amendments that the CRC put on the ballot in 2018 passed and should not have. But that's that's the way things are. And, and I recall Absolutely that time agree period. With that. Yep, go ahead. Absolutely agree with that, by the way, especially because our state legislatures are controlled by so thoroughly by one party that anything that reduces the ability of the public to stand up and, and, and make changes happen that the public really wants, um, you know, should be avoided at all costs. Right. And, and I recall that moment uh, in 2018, the 37 member commission placed seven items on a ballot and voters approved them all. Um, I, I recall my days working with the Palm Beach Post uh, when we had to teach the public about bundled amendments uh, in the way in which Steve just described it. Basically, unrelated issues bundled into one vote proposal, uh, one amendment putting vaping under the same umbrella as oil drilling. Um, exactly. Is, is that what? critics point to when they say they want to abolish the commission is that the argument they tend to make 
that's one of the arguments. Uh, I'd say another argument in favor of eliminating the CRC is it's it's get, it tends to get hijacked by special interests. Um, one of the amendments that passed in 2018 requires there's only one county in Florida without an elected sheriff. And guess what? It's Miami-Dade. Miami-Dade has had an appointed public safety director since the 1960s after serious, serious scandals involving elected sheriffs. Every other county has an elected sheriff. Your listeners are well aware of the many problems in the Broward Sheriff's Office in recent years. Anyway, uh, Amendment 10 forces Dade County to have an elected sheriff, whether the voters there want one or not. This is this is top-down Tallahassee dictatorial government at its worst, in my opinion. Let, and uh, the, the losers are the people of Dade County. Let's segment or let's segue to Amendment Three. We're we're, we're getting to all of them now, and so far it's a no for the first two seg- segments. Am I correct for both publications? That's correct. That's correct. Yes. All right. So now Amendment Three on November's general election ballot would have some homeowners salivating over an additional fifty thousand uh, dollar homestead exemption, but it only benefits a select group. Uh, I guess Steve or Tony, what what is Amendment Three on the ballot proposing? Amendment Three would. Uh, add another, create another $50,000 exemption to the homestead allowance for a whole body of people, as you said, the classroom teachers, law enforcement officers, correctional officers, firefighters, emergency medical technicians, uh, paramedics, child well, on and on. Um, it's it, it lets you take $50,000 off the value of your home and calculating how much property tax you owe. Um, and uh, we're a big no on this one too. Uh, you know, if you want to legislate it, put it into a law not into the Constitution, but also for reasons that these homesteads allowances make it difficult to uh, to evenly spread out the uh, the tax burden in Florida. Um, these people are all worthy of tax breaks. We all are. But um, uh, the more you give everybody a tax break, the more everybody else has to pay in the long run. So yeah. it doesn't really work. And the issue also seems to be that the classification of people it purports to help uh, while excluding people in similar essential job roles like public and private classroom teachers, but like not journalists. school bus dri- drivers and, or counselors <laughs> or journalists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, your perspective or what, what's the Sun Sentinel editorial board's decision on Amendment 3? Yeah, you know, this one was a bit of a closer call. I basically uh, agree with the comments Tony made. Uh, it's a closer call because um, because uh, first responders, teachers, I forget the other subgroups that uh, that would fall under this amendment. But the problem is that it's 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 you know it's even though it's somewhat narrowly drawn, it's another case of of, of politicians in Tallahassee picking favored groups in the population, playing winners and losers. There are other people that are just as as capable as I recall our editorial on this. It uh, would grant this tax exemption to uh, child care workers who work for the state, but not child care workers who work for private nonprofits that contract with the state and uh, there's that's a that's a small distinction but i think everyone listening knows what i'm talking about uh and and the other thing is that is that anytime you do something like this you are extracting tax revenue from cities and counties and that needs in in an in an era of inflation and economic stresses uh and a lack of housing affordability and many other problems there needs to be an overarching compelling reason why the state feels it should take money away from local governments. 
Steve and Tony, stay with me. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking with Sun Sentinel opinion editor Steve Bosquet and Palm Beach Post opinion editor Tony Doris about the constitutional amendments and county referendums on this midterm election ballot. Join us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. And speaking of Twitter, we do have a question from Carlos Rivera. Um... And the question is, given the importance of elections, wouldn't it be best for the greater good to remove paywalls from the election endorsement and recommendation pages? I know they need to make money, but seems like they're denying people important info. You guys want to touch base on that very briefly? <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody wants their newspaper for free. You work for free? Um you know, I understand that, and I, I believe that our news articles themselves uh, are not all behind paywalls. Uh, you should be able to get a pretty decent view uh, of things, but uh, our endorsements, we decided it's time that something our our paid subscribers deserve to see. Um, let's get straight to the counter-referendums. Uh, the show is almost over now. Tono, let's start with you. Now, voters in Palm Beach County will see a question on the back of their ballot about a $200 million affordable housing bond. Uh, proponents, many in the influential business community, say it will increase the housing supply. Some elected officials say it's another uh, burden on local taxpayers. Uh, what's the sort of consensus from Palm Beach Post editorial boards uh, on this position? This was a harder one for us to decide uh, because um, our housing, our, our county desperately needs affordable and workforce housing. We're trying to recruit all kinds of great, well-paying companies from up north to live in our county. And we're trying to have a great uh, tourism, hospitality industry, and yet very hard to find affordable housing these days. Uh, rents have skyrocketed. So uh, we came out in favor of